Let's go ahead and um, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're actually going to tackle five chapters, almost five chapters today. Remember how, who went to the quinceanera? Remember Rory read all the way through Esther? We're not doing that. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to be uh, kind of hopping around. And so what I'm going to do this morning, you guys can go ahead and see it, sit down and do an awesome standing. Is what we're going to do though is I'm going to give you like a a thirty thousand foot view of these five chapters. We're going to fly over it. We're going to give you some just really quick all the bullet points, kind of understanding the landscape, the story that's being unfolded here, and then we're going to go back and forth. So. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I really want to encourage you. We have some up here, and we have some elders that can actually get one to you. You're going to want that in your hands. It's going to be a little bit easier to jump back and forth between these chapters than being on your phone, your electronic device. So with that said, even here, want a, want a Bible. Um, this is the one. These ones right here, Jesus actually wrote. So, right? Personally, no? The autographed one? No? One in the back over here. Lonnie is in the back over here in the shade in the tent. Anyone else? Going once? Oh, in the very back? In the very back as well. I feel like I'm like doing an auction right now. Over here on the right as well, right? So two over here on the right. Anyone else over here? Awesome. All right, so here it comes. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is a story, it kind of springboards from the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, we're going through this life of David in our men's study on Saturday mornings. We actually only have two more studies, and then we end for the summer. We're looking at lessons in leadership, and we've been kind of kind of anchored down in this section of 2 Samuel for a couple of weeks now. Um, next week, we'll be going into chapter 15 as well. Um, if you haven't been a part of that, have not been able to come, haven't heard about it, please want to invite you to come. It's Saturday mornings at 6.30 to 8. We're done at 8 o'clock. We feed you as well, so we get food in your body and food in your soul all in the same day. It's an awesome time. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that. So it starts in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And you might be familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, but all the nuances perhaps are something that you're not familiar with. So it begins in verse 1. It tells us that at a time when the kings were supposed to go out to battle, that David chose to remain in Jerusalem. And one night, in an idle, lazy moment, when he was off duty, so to speak, and he was alone, David goes up to the rooftop of his house, and he gazes across, and he sees a woman on, on her rooftop bathing. And immediately, something happens. A thought led to a look, which developed into a desire, which formed itself into action. And David calls her to himself, and then he lays with her. And in that moment, that defining moment, this man of God blackened his character, imperiled his kingdom, dishonored his God, and caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And it was all because of what Nathan called a traveler, a thought, and he yielded. And to cover up his sin, David kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He thinks that he's gotten away with it. A year has, has gone by. But in chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to tell David that God knows. That God has seen every wicked intent and every thought of David's heart. And so David realizes that he's been caught. 
and he confesses his sin before the Lord. And what I love about this story is before David even gets the words out of his mouth, God forgives him that quickly. That's the nature of God. That's the heart of the God that we worship, right? Immediately, God forgives him. Completely, God forgives him. The hero of the story of, of Bathsheba and David isn't, or even the subject, is not even the, the sin or David himself, but it's the heart of God to forgive sin so quickly, so completely. And so God forgives him immediately, but, and this is the big, probably the biggest three-letter word found in the Bible, but there were consequences to his sin. And though David is forgiven, there's going to be consequences. And one of those consequences is the son that's going to be born to he and Bathsheba will not survive. Midway through chapter 12, David's child with Bathsheba is born. And sure enough, it dies in accordance to the word of God. And that time was an incredibly low period in David's life. A very dark season. But all of a sudden, God gifts him with this beautiful light of another son to David and Bathsheba. And that son's name was Solomon, right? Solomon, the great King Solomon, the wisest king to ever walk the earth. In fact, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. And on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Proverbs. Uh, we're almost finished. It'll be three years in Proverbs on Wednesday nights. If you haven't been able to come to that, please come to that. We have about three more Wednesdays before the summer session is over. But Solomon is born to David and Bathsheba. And that's a bright light in the midst of a very dark time in his life. We come to chapter 13. And it's here that we read of an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate incestuous event between David's son, Amnon, and his half-sister, Tamar. And he actually rapes his sister, Tamar, and consequently ignites a family feud. In response, Absalom, Tamar's full brother, uh, desires to murder Amnon and does so and then goes into exile for three years. Now we're in chapter 14. In chapter 14, Joab, David's trusted commander-in-chief, desiring to reconcile the king with his exiled son, concocts this really dramatic and elaborate story um, to help David understand his need to forgive and to reestablish his son in his kingdom. And so David does so, but under some pretty heavy stipulations. He tells him where he can go and where he can't go. Who he can see and who he cannot see. And this lasts for two years. Okay, This lasts for two years and Absalom has absolutely had enough at the end of this two year period. And he convinces Joab to go to David and say, listen, either forgive me or kill me. But this banishment thing, I've had enough of it. And David listens, and at the end of chapter 14, David forgives and receives Absalom back into his court. And so that's a real quick, and we're just flying over the top of these five chapters, these four chapters here, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 of 2 Samuel. So all those are the major bullet points to kind of understand the storyline. And again, I want to encourage you to go back this week, maybe even this afternoon, if you have some downtime, and read through those chapters to kind of see the hand of God in all of it. But before we continue, let's go ahead and pray this morning and ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time in the Word of God. Father, this morning we just come before you and we are so incredibly thankful, not only for the time of worship, 
in just those moments where we were, we were asked to pause and consider our hearts and the posture of our heart. And Lord, even as we're coming to the table, to stop and consider the posture of our hearts as we come to the table of God. Recognizing who you are and what you have done. The grace and mercy and forgiveness that have been extended to each and every one of us. And then hearing the miraculous work and the glorious work that you're doing in Africa. Lord, what a, what a blessing, what a privilege that you are forgiving souls. Lord, you're reestablishing. And we just praise you and thank you this morning. We ask, Lord, as we go through this, this section of Scripture, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to the reality of the work that you accomplish. That it is adequate, it is glorious, it is complete, and it is altogether wonderful. And that it is ours. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we, we begin this morning, I want to call your attention to what God said to David during his sin with Bathsheba. So if you go back to chapter 12 and look at verses 9 through 12, this was God's response. When David was found in his sin, this is what God says to him in verse 9 of chapter 12. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, verse 10, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And so if you're taking notes in your Bible, you're used to underlining or highlighting things, that's a really good line right there that God's going to raise up adversity from your own house. And then we skip to verse 12 and it says, You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. We discover as we read through chapters 12, 13, and 14 that David not only received pardon for his transgressions, but we begin to see that he also starts to reap what he had sown, the consequences of his sin. As we follow the narrative, something begins to unravel. Something begins to have, or appears to have snapped somewhere. The bonds of the integrity of his house have collapsed. And David seems utterly unable to cope with it. Amnon, David's oldest son, treated his half-sister Tamar the exact same way that David treated Bathsheba. And Absalom, David's uh, spoiled son, treated, his, treated um, his brother Amnon the exact same way that David treated Uriah. And all the while, with this awful sense of his own guilt, David watches his home and his family fracture before his very eyes. And he has, he has no power and no ability to deal with it at all. And of course he doesn't because the, the sin is, is powerfully destructive. It has 
devastating consequences. And every single one of us have drank deeply of its aftermath, haven't we? Or we've watched. We've watched as other families and other people and other relationships have just gone and become shipwrecked because of sin. David is experiencing it for the first time here. Forgiven by God? Yes. Absolutely. But still experiencing the chastisement of the Lord because of sin. Sin, which he has been forgiven. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Here we see David, after he's been found, remember the story? Nathan comes to David and tells us this elaborate story about a man, a rich man, who has everything that you could ever want. Land and flocks and sheep and friends, and etc. And then he tells another story about a, a poor man who has almost nothing. All he has is one ewe lamb. And he says that they loved it. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 12, it says they nourished this lamb. It grew up together with him and with his children. It ate from his table. It drank from his own cup. It lay in his bosom. And he loved it like it was one of his own children. And Nathan tells a story about how one day this man comes to visit his rich friend. And the rich friend goes and steals the little ewe lamb from this poor man and slaughters it and puts on a feast for his friend. And David is indignant. If you guys know the story, he is mad. He's like, that man must die and repay fourfold from what he's taken. And immediately Nathan says, you're the guy. You're the man. It was you. And all of a sudden, David is overwhelmed by the reality of his sin. And in verse, 12, verse 13, he confesses his sin. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against Joab, his trusted friend, who literally put Uriah on the front lines to have him killed. But more than anything else, supremely, he had sinned against the Lord. And so he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die that fast, that quick. God forgives him. Before the words have even left his mouth, Nathan interrupts him and says, listen, God has forgiven you. And you shall not die. But look at verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And we read in chapter 12, that's exactly what happens. And we're going to come back to this moment in a few few minutes. But we find ourselves um, entering into chapter 13. And it's in chapter 13 that not only has David's son passed, but now we see this really gross, heinous, violent act that Amnon does toward his half-sister. And what's interesting is Amnon saw his half-sister Tamar and he loved her. He thought she was beautiful. In fact, in verse 2, it says he became distressed over her. He was literally lovesick, it says in chapter, or in verse 2 of chapter 13, that he became ill. He wanted to be with her so bad. He invites her to his house. She literally says in verse 12, do not force me. This is a disgraceful thing. And he does so. Anyways, verse 14, he's stronger than her. He forces himself on her. 
And then it says, and what's interesting is this, is as David becomes aware of this event, it wasn't just the fact that Amnon had taken advantage of his sister, but notice in chapter 13, verse 15, how he treated her afterwards. He forces himself on her, and then he just discards her like a piece of rubbish, like a wrapper from gum, just discards her. And look what it says in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Kicks her to the curb in that moment. And when David finds out about this, look at verse 21. When David finds out about this, Man, he's upset. It says in verse 21, when King David heard of these things, he was very angry. I think it's unfortunate that the New King James translates that word angry because it almost neuters what was happening at that moment. The Hebrew is a lot more powerful. It literally means that he was indignant. He was furious. He was enraged. He was seething and fuming. He was outraged. Yes, I have a thesaurus. I've been looking at it, trying to figure out what those words mean. Right? And it says that he was hopping mad. He was wroth, foaming at the mouth, in a lather, fit to be tied. And the last one, as cross as two sticks. I don't know what that means, but it must be really bad. So when you're walking around, you see two sticks in the ground, stay away from them. That's a scary place to be. David was in this type of state of mind. It's the idea where he couldn't even stand still. Have you ever been so mad that you can't sit down? You can't even stand still? You're just pacing back and forth? Have you guys ever been in that place before? That's where David's at. He is absolutely furious and livid. And here he is in this situation, this state of mind. But the saddest thing is he takes no action. He takes no action. Furious and rage. That's all fine and great. But as far as accountability is concerned, as far as discipline was concerned, David was incapable of exercising any. Think of it. How could he rebuke his son for a crime against a sister when the memory of Bathsheba was still fresh in his own heart? How could he discipline Absalom for murder when the death of Uriah was so crisp? In his own conscience. And so subsequently David faced the humiliation of seeing his house divided and his kingdom on the danger uh, in danger of being collapse or collapsing, sorry, <clears throat> all because of his own personal breakdown. All this is happening because of his own personal breakdown. And for the rest of David's days, there'd be very few happy ones. And just like God said in chapter 13, there would be a storm that would come. Or chapter 12, sorry. A storm that would come and it would settle in. And now this storm has settled. But where did it stem from? Where did it begin? First, it was a consequence of sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. That's obvious. But second, and perhaps even more importantly, these unfortunate and painful events were the ramification of David's failure to shepherd his own house. Let me say that again. These unfortunate and painful events 
that David is experiencing were the ramification of David's failure to shepherd his own house. A failure to lead spiritually. A failure to hold on to his sunglasses. <laughs> a failure to nurture an environment of accountability and responsibility and mutual respect. A failure to discipline his children in a way that would glorify the Lord and point them to an understanding of their desperate need for grace and forgiveness. And here's the key. David's half-hearted forgiveness of Absalom and his inability to cope with the whole situation led to rebellion. And before long, David found himself in exile. Half-hearted forgiveness. Let me ask you this morning, is that how God forgives? Does God forgive half-heartedly? When he forgives, does he forget? Does he just brush away sin? Brush it under the carpet? Put it in a closet? The principle of these chapters is that each and every one of us are either A, under the judgment of sin which God has never forgiven, or B, we are suffering from the chastisement of a loving Heavenly Father who has forgiven sin, but is holding us accountable for our choices and actions. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says this, For the Lord disciplines... The Lord corrects those whom He loves and He punishes every son whom He receives and welcomes to His heart. God disciplines and corrects those whom He loves and He holds accountable every son whom He receives and welcomes to His heart. Friends, what we need to see in this section is what happened to David's home during those years was not in spite of the fact he was forgiven, but it was because he had been forgiven. The man whom God forgives sometimes has to drink very deeply of the well which his sin has tapped. And for some of us here this morning, that's a shock to us because we're looking for cheap grace. We're looking for cheap forgiveness. But this story shows the chastening hand of a loving father is, very, is a very different thing from the judging hand of a holy God. Let's return to the narrative here in chapter 13. Absalom is infuriated that Amnon has attacked his sister, has violated her, and so he waits, he plots, he schemes for an opportunity to murder him, and once he's done so, what does he do then? He runs for his life, from the judgment of his father. Alan Redpath said, Absalom was a spoiled child with a child's petulance and an old man's passion. And though David is sitting here and he's seeing what's happening and his son is now, has now run into exile, he's torn. As the narrative continues, he's torn. There's conflict in his heart. There's this paradox that exists because on one hand, he understands that as king, he must punish this evil. But on the other hand, he's a dad. He's a father. And he loves his son. And he wants to be near his son. In fact, if we look at this story in verse 39 of chapter 13, actually verse 38 of chapter 13, 
It says, so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And during that period of time, the sting of Amnon's death began to wax. And this longing to be reconnected to his, his son Absalom began to grow. And it says in verse 39, and David longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. And then in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, So Joab, the son of Zariah, received the king's heart, or sorry, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So David is here, he's sentimental. After three years, Joab, knowing God, or knowing David's struggle, he concocts this story with this wise old woman from Tekoa. And it's interesting, he puts words in her mouth and he tells her, go to the king and say exactly this. And she comes in the king's presence and she tells this story how she, or her, her two sons, she's a widow and her two sons were out working in the field and they got in an argument and one son killed the other son. Sound familiar? Cain and Abel, right? One son killed the other son and now the entire family is in, is in an uproar and they're wanting their pound of flesh. They're wanting to, to kill this one son who's now surviving. And she goes to the king and says, hey, I'm a widow. All that I have is, is in my son and his name. And if, if they take him and he dies, then I have nothing. And David looks at her and says, listen, you have my word. No one will touch a hair on his head. I'll protect him. And she turns the tables on David and goes, David, you're just like this. You're just like these people. You're just like my family members. Because your son has killed your other son, and now you've banished him from the kingdom. And you will not allow him to come back home. You will not receive him. You will not forgive him. And David is cut to the heart. Just like he was when Nathan said, you're the man. This is the same situation. This woman goes, you're the guy. And David then calls to have Joab go and get his son and bring him back. And in chapter 14, verse 21 the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And the king said, Let him return to his own home, but do not let him see my face. And so Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Is that forgiveness? That's the kind of forgiveness that we give people, isn't it? He has ever been on the receiving end of that type of forgiveness where someone says, okay, it's all good, it's all fine, but they still keep you at arm's length? And you think that everything is good, you think that you've been reconciled, you think that the, the gap that was between you has now been, been filled in and everything's going to be okay, and all of a sudden you realize, like, no, this person is still keeping me at arm's length, they're still not allowing me to come, to come close to them, there's still a, a great gulf and a barrier between us, and they're making me feel it all the time. They don't sit there and yell at you. They don't sit there and literally put their hands in your face. But by their actions and reactions to you or their, their unwillingness to allow you to be a part of their life, they're literally telling you, you're not welcome here. You guys ever been in that place? Though you've been forgiven? What does that do to your heart? It causes bitterness, doesn't it? It causes resentment. It causes a lack of trust. And that's exactly what's happening in Absalom's heart. And so this went on for two years. 
Absalom is welcomed back into Jerusalem. He can stay in his own house, but he's under house arrest, and he's not allowed to see the face of his father for two years. And at the end of that two-year period, Absalom is like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is absolutely unjust, unfair. And so the story goes on that he calls for Joab, and Joab ignores his call. He calls for Joab a second time, and Joab ignores his call. Why? Because Joab's smart enough to know, like, hey, if I start responding, I start hanging out with Absalom, David's going to think that somehow I'm, I'm in cahoots with Absalom. So he keeps his distance, right? He doesn't want to betray the trust of his king. And so Absalom recognizes what's going on. He goes, you know what? You don't want to come. I'm going to make you come. And so he has this idea that he's going to light a field on fire next to his property. And guess whose field he lights on fire? Joab's. And Joab's like, what in the world? And comes running out there. What are you doing? He says, yes, and I called you twice. You wouldn't come. This is the only way I could get your attention. Now you're here. I have your attention. Here, listen to what I have to say. Either tell the king, kill me or forgive me. But this is ridiculous. This has to end. And Joab's like, okay, okay, fine. I'll go home and I'll talk to the king. And he does so in chapter 14, verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and, be, and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And then the king kissed Absalom. The king received him back into his presence. Now understand, this has been five years since Absalom killed his brother Amnon. And this is the first time that Absalom is home, so to speak. But here's the thing, we don't want to miss this. David welcomed his delinquent son into his presence without any evidence at all of repentance. Any evidence at all of contrition or remorse or sorrow on Absalom's part. Absalom is upset because he feels like he's being mistreated, but he's not sorry for what he has done. He's not sorry for the pain that he has caused in the family. He could care less about that. He's more concerned about how he's being treated. But he's forgiven. He's received into the family. And the result is this, not long after Absalom is reinstated into the kingdom because of what was still in his heart, reinstated into his father's graces, that ungrateful, unruly, rebellious heart began to go to work. In chapter 15, verse 6, we begin to read that Absalom began to steal the hearts of the people, began to undermine his king and steal the hearts of the people. In verses 2 and 4 of chapter 15, we see that he begins to sow these seeds of distrust in the hearts of the people concerning their king. And this is what he does. He goes to the gate of the city, and he sits down and he waits. And as people are coming into Jerusalem, he stops them and goes, Oh, hey, how are you? Good. How's your day? Good. What, what can I do for you? What are you coming into town for? Well, I'm coming in because I have this issue and I'm wondering if I can, wondering if I can sit down with a judge and see if he can help me out. He's like, well, what's the issue? And he tells him their problem. And Absalom says, oh man, that's, you have a really good case. It's too bad there's no judge here to hear it. But if I was made judge, then I would hear what you have to say and I would give you justice. And so he begins to undermine the king. And finally, Absalom secured a sudden revolt 
And he, he leads this revolt against his father. And he literally kicks him out of Jerusalem. Kicks him off his throne. Kicks him into exile. And to add insult to injury, he steals David's most trusted advisor and counselor, a man named Ahithophel. And what's crazy is Ahithophel happens to be Bathsheba's grandfather. And so we see there's a little bit of strife there, right? There's something inside there that, that Absalom saw and began to pull at those strings to the point where Ahithophel left David's side and aligned himself with Absalom. And the lesson is this, the kind of forgiveness that David had given to his son Absalom only sowed the seed of more rebellion. It only sowed the seed of more rebellion. Remember how it was? At first, he kept him at arm's length. That's the first initial half-hearted forgiveness. And then it was he forgave him, but there was no remorse. No contrition, no repentance, no recognition. When we were raising our kids, whenever um, there would be disobedience or something in our home, we would sit our kids down and we'd talk about this idea. I know I've shared with it before about how we used to be like this, but now because you have done this, you've disobeyed us, you've broken that friendship, and now we're like this. That relationship has now been broken. And what do you need to do in order to make it like this again? And they say, we need to ask for forgiveness. I say, okay. Ask for forgiveness. And Dad, I'm sorry. And I would say this, for what? What are you sorry for? And they would have to say, well, I'm sorry for disobeying you. I'm sorry for kicking the dog. I'm sorry for whatever it may be. They would have to confess it. And and then I'd say, well, you're sorry for it, but what did it do? Well, it it hurt my sister. It offended you. Um, It broke trust. Whatever it may be. And they would have to confess it. But here, David doesn't do any of that. He just receives his son back into his good graces with no repentance, no remorse, no contrition at all. And all it did was fuel an already wicked heart to do more wickedness. The king welcomed Absalom back into his presence, but the next thing he knew, he found himself betrayed by the very son he had forgiven What kind of forgiveness is that? If we're absolutely honest, it is the kind of forgiveness that we want from God. But we can never receive from Him. He never gives it. Because God will never forgive at the expense of justice. That's where David failed. You see, God forgives and He longs to do so. But unlike David, God will never wink at sin. He'll never just pass it by. He'll never turn a blind eye to it. He'll never just brush it under the carpet. He'll never just go, oh, it is what it is. That's okay. That's what kids do. That's what that's what humanity does. It's all fine. That's just their nature. He'll never wink at something like that. The first thing that God will do in offering forgiveness, the thing that David should have done, the thing that you and I must do every single time, is to recognize that righteousness is righteousness. And that sin is still called sin. In fact, that's what God calls it. He calls sin wickedness in chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you done this wickedness in my sight? We need to be a people that call sin, sin. And righteousness, righteousness. 
Something needs to be done. The second thing that God must do if he is to pardon sin is to turn the man who has been forgiven away from his sinful lust and to plant within him a heart that longs for holiness and righteousness. To put it another word, um, unless you learn to hate your sin, then you're going to constantly, continuously crawl back to God every five minutes looking for pardon because you keep on sinning. Friends, listen. A superficial sense of sin is satisfied with a superficial forgiveness. A superficial sense of sin is satisfied with superficial forgiveness. But that is not the forgiveness that God gives. And that is not real forgiveness. Look at the world in which we live in. Does it look like a world that we can offer easy forgiveness to? With all its filth and vices and immorality and violence and breakdown? Should we go into this sordid and vile world with a kind of syncopated gospel that says, It's okay. Come on in. It's fine. Your sins are forgiven. Come to heaven. Try now or travel now. Pay later. It's all good. Is that the kind of gospel that we should be preaching? No. You know why? Because God doesn't preach that gospel. And look at this. I love this verse. Chapter 14, verse 14. Chapter 14, verse 14. In the midst of this woman from Tekoa, she's speaking to the king. And inserted into what she has to say is one of the most profound verses in this section. It reveals the redemptive heart of God in verse 14. Notice what she says. God does not take away life. But he devises means so that the ban- so that his banished ones, that's you and that's me, are not expelled from him. Let's read that again. God does not take away life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. To remind you of something in the New Testament, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, right, that he devises means that everyone who believes in him should not perish that his banished ones should not be expelled but have everlasting life that's the gospel here verse 14 of chapter 14 God's redemptive plan why? because sin is a direct offense to the very nature of God and he cannot bear it In fact, Isaiah 59 tells us this, that our iniquities have separated us from God, that our sin has hidden His face from us. God, in all of His holiness and righteousness, cannot wink at sin. Sin has created a great gulf, we read about in the Scriptures, between us and God. And because of that, notice that God devises plans. Literally what it means is that He plans plannings. He thinks thoughts. His goodness forbids that he should forgive arbitrarily. His holiness forbids it. His nature forbids it. Therefore, he plans means. And what is that means? It's the cross. And only the cross meets God's requirements. At Calvary, the gulf between a holy God and sinful man was bridged. That is the miracle of grace. Think of it for a second. Where is there such proof that the wages of sin is death than at the cross? 
Where is such a demonstration of the holiness and purity of God's law than when my Jesus submitted himself to it entirely? Where can we learn the hideousness of sin and God's hatred for it better than in seeing God's beloved son rejected, taunted, and crucified? Where do we realize the misery of being banished from his presence? That when we hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, when he says, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? It is only at the foot of the cross that man can be forgiven. It is only at the foot of the cross that man who is forgiven learns to hate the sin that has separated him from God. God's forgiveness of the human soul can only take place when a guilty soul and a holy God are brought together by faith, which claim the price that Jesus paid. That is real forgiveness. That is true forgiveness. That's adequate forgiveness. I'm going to have, because of the time that we have left, I'm going to have the worship team start making their way up. And I'll close with just a few statements here. David's forgiveness of Absalom was completely inadequate, leading to further breakdown of sin and rebellion. In contrast, God's forgiveness of man's soul is completely adequate. And it is a great deterrent against sin. I can tell you this, I've walked with the Lord now for almost 30 years. And I think initially we think the gospel is something that you need at the very beginning of your walk with God. But I'll confess this morning, I need the gospel every single day. And the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I love it, and the more I recognize I need it. Because the gospel tells me this, that sin is ugly. Sin is brutal. Sin is destructive. And when I think about the cross, and I think about my Savior hanging upon that cross, I recognize that it wasn't the nails that held him there. It wasn't the Romans that nailed him there. It wasn't the Jews that put him up there. It was me. It was my sin that put Jesus up there. And when I think of that, I hate sin. I see the ugliness of it. I see the destructive nature of it. I see that it robs and it kills and it destroys. And when I think of that, when I have my mind and my heart set upon that, I hate sin. But when I get away from that, and I think about me, I want sloppy forgiveness. I want weak grace. But then when I come back into the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus, and I look upon the cross, I just want what he has for me. And I know it's not easy. And I know it's not clean. It's costly. But what Jesus offers, what God offers to mankind through the person and finished work of Jesus is completely adequate. And it is a great deterrent against sin. As we come to the end of chapter 15, we begin to see some interesting things happen. David is expelled from the holy city by his son Absalom the one he has forgiven. David is expelled in disgrace. And look what it says in verse 13 of chapter 
I'm sorry, verse 30 of chapter 15. Verse 30 of chapter 15, it says, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went. Now, if you guys have ever been to Israel, you know exactly where David's at. He's leaving Jerusalem, the city. He drops down and crosses over the brook Kidron, and he has to start climbing the hill to the Mount of Olives. A thousand years later, someone else would make that same trip. His name is Jesus. He would leave Jerusalem, cross the brook, the brook Kidron, and begin that ascent to the Mount of Olives. And it's there on the eve of his crucifixion that he would pray so vehemently, so powerfully, so strongly that he would bleed drops of blood. And here's David, a thousand years earlier, taking that same path. And it says that he wept as he went. He had his head uncovered, or his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. As I read that, I began to think, why, why the tears? Was it because David had lost Jerusalem? Was it because he had lost the throne? Was it because he had lost the kingdom? No. No, indeed. When David went up from Jerusalem, what broke his heart was the evidence of his sin in the lives of his children. It was the evidence of his sin in his kingdom. He watched everything fall apart in front of him. And the sense of guilt and shame broke him. And that's what I meant when I said earlier on that every man, every woman, either is under the judgment of God's holiness for sin that has never been taken to the cross, or he or she is experiencing the chastening hand of our loving Heavenly Father. As Hebrews 12 tells us, for those whom he loves, he chastises. He chastens. And what I love about the story of David is this. As David leaves Jerusalem, as he ascends that hill to the Mount of Olives, heavy-hearted, I'm sure, but he's fully aware of what God is doing in his life. And as he submits to the chastening hand of God, David is still a man after God's own heart. And if you want to know what was actually going on in his heart, during this period of time, read Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3 is believed to be written by David when he was in exile from Jerusalem. And it's interesting as we see a man not sulking, not a man licking his own wounds, not a man who feels pity and sorrow for himself and the state of his life. We see a man who's comforted. We see a man who is resting in the chastening hand of God. We see a man who's at peace. In Psalm chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. That's what God does. That's what the forgiveness of God does. It doesn't cause us to feel pity for ourselves. It doesn't breed bitterness or resentment in our hearts. It causes us to worship. Even though we have to walk through the consequences of our sin, it causes us to have our hearts lifted up, our eyes lifted up to the Lord, and we're comforted in His presence. We say things like this, You are my shield, my glory. The one who lifts my head. 
The one who hears my voice when I cry. The one who, when I lay down and sleep, when I awake, you are there. You sustain me. Such is the forgiveness of God. Is it cheap? No. Is it easy? No. It's very costly. But it's glorious. As we submit in our hearts and receive the chastening of our loving Heavenly Father, we begin to understand what a precious thing it is to be conformed in the image of His Son. Let's go ahead and stand together as we close here this morning. David is going through a very difficult time in his life. He's reaping the consequences of sin. Our gracious Heavenly Father has extended His hand upon David's life and allowed him to understand there are consequences to his sin. David is struggling to understand it. He's struggling to model it. And because he's struggling to model what it means to lead and to follow the goodness of God, he begins to see the relationships around him fall apart. He begins to see his family disintegrate. But God is not done with him yet. The story goes on and eventually David is restored he comes back to Jerusalem, comes back to the throne, begins to enjoy the fullness of life that God had promised him once again. And even towards the end of his life, he would pray and worship and be thankful for the goodness of God in his life. From this passage, we begin to see the hazards of half-hearted forgiveness. And maybe that's a word for some of you here this morning. That you're the kind of person that does that. You're the kind of person that extends forgiveness but still extends your arms and keeps people at an arm's length. And God would just check your heart and tell you that's not true forgiveness. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is seen in the prodigal son. Where the son goes wayward and offends his father and then when he comes home, his father runs to him and embraces him. The son's repentant. He recognizes what he's done. He says, listen, it's better for me than to live here and eat the, the, the food of pigs. In fact, it's better for me to be a servant in my father's house. His father says, no, son. You are my son. You are my daughter. I forgive you. I accept you. I love you. And he embraces him. That's true forgiveness. But Chris, you don't understand how badly these individuals have hurt me. I would just encourage you to think of the cross. Think how bad we hurt the heart of God when we nailed Jesus to the cross. No one has ever done that to me. And that God accepts us, God receives us. And he asks us to extend that same type of grace, that same type of mercy to other people. Or maybe it's a situation where you're like Absalom. 
you've been in the church, you've experienced the blessings of being in the church, but you're still, there's something wrong in your heart. You still practice sin. You still enjoy it. You're unwilling to confess it, to call sin what it is, to call righteousness righteousness and sin sin. That is wickedness and offense against God. That's the very thing that hung Jesus upon the tree of Calvary. I want to encourage you today to confess your sin before the Lord to repent, to come clean, to be honest. Or perhaps you're here today and there's a little bit of bitterness in your heart because of something that has happened in the past and you're mad at God. You're mad at your Father. And now there's a distance between you and Him. You, you, you still say you're a Christian. You still attend church every once in a while. If someone were to ask you or you're a believer, you would say yes. But you know there's a distance between you and God. It's not Him putting it there. It's you putting it there because you've been offended. You've misunderstood the chastening hand of God for God's judging hand. And you become bitter and resentful toward God. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to open your heart to understand how good He is and that He only holds accountable those whom He loves. And I want to encourage you to come this morning and recognize that and just yield yourself to it. Ask God forgiveness for your bitter heart, your resentful heart. And allow Him to cleanse you. Allow Him to draw you in as David did his son to, to kiss him this morning. And if that's you this morning, just with your heads bowed, just go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads. Right where we, are. we don't do this very often. But just like we were cheering for our, our missionaries and trying to encourage their hearts today, I just want to encourage you right where you're at with eyes bowed, sorry, eyes closed and heads bowed. If any of that is you that we just spoke of, and you're the person that forgives but keeps people at arm's length, half-hearted forgiveness, or you're a son who's, or a daughter who's bitter and resentful, and you're actually keeping yourself from the blessings of God and the presence of God because of it, because you've misunderstood the chastening hand of God for the judging hand of God. If that's you this morning, right where you are, I just want you just to lift up your hands and say, Chris, would you pray for me right now? That's that's me. I need, I need prayer this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord. Right here in the front. Praise the Lord. Over here to my right. God wants to forgive you. God wants to reestablish you to reinstate you into his presence, for you to experience the fullness of his love and grace and forgiveness, for you to be able to walk free. But you have to take that step. You have to say, Lord, that's me. Anyone else here this morning just wants to lift their hand and say, Lord, I, I want to understand your forgiveness it's adequacy, it's completeness. 
in a way that I'm struggling to understand it right now. Not the way the world forgives, not the way I've experienced forgiveness, but Lord, the way your word describes it. To be forgiven, to be set free. So they don't have to keep going back to the Lord every five minutes looking for pardon for a sin they continually keep committing. I want to be forgiven. I want to see sin for what it is. And then it changes my mind. It changes my heart concerning it. Anyone here this morning that's in that place, it's like, amen, praise the Lord. Over here in my lap as well. In the back. I just want to know sin for what it is and turn away from it. Have you changed my heart and give me a heart that longs for holiness. Anyone else here this morning? Father, this morning, just all the people that have responded, who have raised their hands and raised their hearts, they're just so tender, so sensitive to your spirit this morning. We can look at a passage like this, a section of scripture, and just be overwhelmed by the word sin, 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 so often that we stop responding, we just close our ears and close our hearts. But Lord, when we hear the words forgiveness, complete forgiveness, the forgiveness that David experienced when he confessed his sin and said, against you and you alone have I sinned. And then immediately to hear those words, David, you are forgiven. God has removed it from you. That's what we long for. Not cheap forgiveness. Not cheap grace. But something that's real something that's transformative, something that changes who we are in our hearts so that we long for you above everything else. We long for your presence above everything else, Lord. Lord, for those that are struggling with being able to forgive you, Lord, and, and they've, they've created this, this wall, this, this gap between their heart and your heart and they they walk on the fringes of a relationship with you. Lord, we pray today that you'd help them to understand the goodness of your heart. Yes, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. You are God and we are men and women. We're but flesh. At best, we're dust. But you are God. And you've chosen to condescend. You've chosen, Lord, to extend your heart to us so that the banished ones would not be separated from you. So, Father, we want to ask, even today as they raise their hand, as they are taking that step toward you, Lord, would you take a God-sized step toward them? Close the gap, Lord. For those of us who struggle to forgive, do a work in our hearts. Let grace wash over our hearts. Let mercy wash over our hearts. Change the way we think or how we've been taught because of our background, our upbringing, our experience. And help us, Lord God, to emulate and to reflect uh, the forgiving heart of our Heavenly Father. Our forgiveness is complete. Forgiveness that's more than adequate this morning, we 
and help us walk in freedom, Lord. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from sin. Let today be a day that we take new steps, fresh steps. We're not just following after you, but keeping stride with you, Lord. May we experience your favor upon our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.